Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. The Ghost of Raynham Hall Some Authentic Stories of Supernatural Occurrences in Norfolk by Gwiladis Townsend of Raynham I have said in my recently published volumes of recollections that while accepting Dr. Johnson's opinion of ghostly returns as all argument is against it, but all belief is for it, I must confess that I believe in ghosts, and I have lived for many years in a definitely haunted house. Raynham Hall, known throughout Norfolk as the Great House, the home of the town sense for successive generations, is haunted, not only by the historic brown lady, mentioned in all important literature on the subject of the supernatural, but also by a tragic duke and the harmless phantoms of animals and children. Place are dames, so I will take my readers with me to Raynham and introduce them to Dorothy Walpole, better known as the Brown Lady. Dorothy Walpole, the sister of Sir Robert Walpole, married the second Viscount Townsend, but the marriage was an unhappy one. And Dorothy's sole interest in life were centered in her children, who remained at Raynham in charge of their grandmother, their mother for some reason having been deprived of any share in their upbringing. The Viscountess is said to have been a charming, frivolous creature with a pardonable love of pretty clothes, judging from a lengthy bill for chiffons which is kept amongst our family papers. Her husband may have resented her extravagance, but he did not advertise the fact. And as no breath of scandal was associated with her name, I suppose one may assume that in colloquial terms Lord and Lady Townsend didn't hit it off. An amazing story has always persisted, and still persists, in connection with Dorothy Walpole, who, according to tradition, was starved to death at Raynham Hall. In the 17th century, enforced starvation in surroundings like those of Raynham Hall would have been impossible, unless Lady Townsend had staged a hunger strike of such magnitude that she died from it and with such an important brother as Sir Robert Walpole living close by, she could not have been removed in this manner. Had Dorothy Walpole lived when knights were bold and ubilettes and torture dungeons part of the daily round, starvation would not only have been possible, but highly probable. I have accepted the story of starvation as being symbolical of Dorothy Walpole's tragedy of starved affections which always represents such a terrible death in life. However, the unhappy wife and mother has now become the family ghost, and as a brown lady, she chiefly confines her appearance to the principal staircase and some of the corridors at Raynham Hall. One of the best authenticated stories of her appearance was in 1849, when a large house party met at Raynham as the guest of Lord Charles Townsend, who then owned the great house amongst them Major and Mrs. Loftus, near relatives of the Townsends. Major Loftus, 
who had no use for the early-to-bed regime, preferred to interpret early as a.m. and not p.m., sharing Tom Moore's belief that the very best way to lengthen the day is to steal a bit from the night, me dear. And one particular dawn, when he was making his way upstairs, after an all-night sitting, the friend who was with him drew his attention to a lady wearing a brown silk dress, standing on the landing. Ladies in early Victorian days were not in the habit of waiting up in the small hours, except to give their husbands curtain lectures. And as Major Loftus did not belong to this lady, he was naturally puzzled as to her identity. But when he hailed her, the lady in the brown silk dress vanished. The next night, Major Loftus sat up to watch for the mysterious lady who in due course made her appearance, and the Major, who was familiar with the geography of the great house, determined to waylay her, cut off her retreat, and come face to face with her in a side passage. His plan succeeded, and he encountered a handsome woman, dressed in brown, but, to his horror, two empty sockets represented the place where the eyes should have been. The Major, who was able to see the ghost quite plainly by means of the lamp he was carrying, was so much impressed that, before meeting the house party at breakfast, he made an excellent sketch of the brown lady, and passed it round in corroboration of his adventure, which inspired the guests to sit up night after night, facing the haunted staircase hoping to see the ghost, who obstinately refused to show herself. Unfortunately, when the story of the brown lady was thoroughly assimilated in the servants' hall, the entire staff gave notice. And although Lord Charles Townsend declared the ghost had appeared to him more than once in his bedroom, and the servant Exodus having destroyed for the moment the amenities of life, he became suspicious that the brown lady was in the nature of some distasteful practical joke. He determined to find out things for himself, and he replaced his missing servants by a capable staff of detectives, who remained at Raynham for months on end, without obtaining the smallest clue, either to the ghost or to the instigator of the suspected trickery. The case of the brown lady proving as elusive as any modern unsolved police mystery. The brown lady continues to haunt Raynham, and she was seen quite recently by my brother-in-laws, Mr. James Durham's sister, Mrs. Cyril Fitzroy, and her daughter, who, not being unduly troubled with flights of imagination, are reliable witnesses as to the actual existence of the family ghost. Her last but one appearance was to no less a person than my son George, when, as a small boy, he and Walter Rothermel, a little American friend, met a lady on the staircase, who not only frightened, but puzzled them, because, as George said, they could see the stairs through her. Captain Marriott, known to an earlier generation as a writer of adventure stories, was not so kindly or artistically disposed towards the brown lady as Major Loftus had been, so, when she appeared in the semi-twilight of one of the corridors at Raynham, he discharged his pistol full in her face, whereupon she vanished, and the bullet found its billet in the door behind her. During the remainder of his visit, Captain Marriott always slept with loaded pistols under his pillow. About twelve years ago, when Sir Henry Birkin, better known as Tim Birkin, rented the shooting at Raynham, he set up especially to wait for the brown lady, and like Captain Marriott, he was disposed to shoot at sight. But he waited in vain, although the dog who shared Tim's watch on the stairs, showed signs of terror and uneasiness. 
in the small hours. The Monmouth Room at Raynham, so-called an account of the ill-fated Duke of Monmouth having slept there when he stayed at the great house with his royal father, is haunted by the ghost of the Duke, who appears not as a Rosen Cavalier, but as a Red Cavalier, and he once enacted the role of a ghostly scout, as he certainly did one good deed on this especial night. As one of my house parties, the Monmouth room was occupied by the loveliest debutante of her year, who begged to sleep there, as she wanted beyond all things to meet the Red Cavalier. The Phantom of the Duke. The Phantom of the Duke did not materialize, so I suppose that ghosts are among those who can't be drove, and in consequence the lovely drew a blank. The next person to sleep in the Monmouth room, two days after the Deb's departure, was a connection of the Townsends, a spinster of uncertain age destined by fate to lead one of those small, smothered lives devoid of romance and its possibilities. Nevertheless, it fell to her lot to experience one glamorous night, when she suddenly awoke to see the Red Cavalier standing at the foot of her bed, smiling in a most encouraging manner. She told us afterwards that she was not in the least frightened, only happily interested, and when as befitted a courtier, the Duke paid her the homage due to a princess of the blood, and bowed himself out into the shadows of the opposite wall, he became the happiest memory of a drab lifetime. It was a beau jest, worthy of the son of the Mary monarch, who, if he never said anything wise, at least was consistently charming to women. There are two ghosts of children at Raynham. One of them haunts a room known as the Stone Parlor, and she was first seen, although I believe often previously heard, by Miss Balmer, my German governess, who I asked to act as hostess one day during my May royalty at King's Lynn, where I was due to open a bazaar and receive Lady Nora Bentnick, her two little children, and the Dowager Countess of Gainsborough, who were coming on a visit to Raynham. The visitors were welcomed by Miss Balmer, who presently said to Lady Nora, I thought you were only bringing two children, but I see there are three. Is the other child sleeping with Biddy? And by the by, wherever has she got to? What other child? asked Lady Nora. There are only Biddy and Henry. I don't know what you mean by three children. Miss Balmer explained that when Lady Nora and the children got out of the car, a little girl wearing, so she described it, a picture frock, went with them up the steps leading to the entrance and ran through the hall into the stone parlor. It was impossible for me to be mistaken, she added. She always insisted that Biddy and Henry must have been accompanied by the Townsend child, who still loves the stone parlor for the sake of its earthly associations, and I wonder whether the ghostly spaniel, which haunts Raynham, belonged to these phantoms from the past. It would be joyous to think that Raynham was still a garrison of smiling children, and that forevermore the tune of little feet will be heard along the floors trodden by so many generations of the Townsends. The ghostly spaniel is not seen, although it makes its presence felt. One late afternoon in October 1935, Maud Folks, who was staying with me, went up to a room by one of the doors opening onto a small vestibule leading to the principal staircase. Directly, Mrs. Folks closed the door. She heard the pitter-patter of feet beside her, but thinking it was my sun-dog's Rex, she took no notice, and as the staircase was unlit, she could not see anything definite. However, when she stooped to pat Rex, she discovered there was no dog, 
and taking her courage in both hands, she ran back into the marble hall, where she saw Rex and his friend Rip sleeping in front of the fire. I may add that Maud folks had never heard about the ghostly spaniel, so her evidence is entirely unprejudiced, but she confessed that after this she was always a little nervous of what she might meet on the staircase associated with so many returns from the invisible world. Apart from the appearance of the brown lady, the death of a Townsend is heralded by various portents, usually associated with historic houses. Shortly before my mother-in-law, the Dowager Marchioness, became seriously ill at her house at Gloucester, I gave a party at Raynham, and Miss Balmer, who had been helping with the arrangements, noticed a tall, fair woman wearing a flowing pink dress coming out of my bedroom, holding her handkerchief to her eyes. Seeing her evident distress, kind Miss Balmer hastened to ask me whether any guests had arrived after dinner and if there had been any contrumps. Hence these tears. I told her no, and we decided that what she had seen must be in the nature of a warning. This proved correct. The dowager died before many weeks had passed, and my sister-in-law, Lady Agnes Jerome, tells me that previous to the death of her father, the fifth marquis, when Raynham Hall happened to be let, the tenants were awakened by hearing the footsteps of many people passing up and down the staircase, and when they proceeded to investigate, waves of blackness alone flowed past them, and there was not a sign or sound of anything or anybody. The same thing happened on the following night, and next morning news arrived that Lord Townsend had died in Paris about the time when the disturbances occurred. Some kind of sympathy must exist between the Townsend's family and the world of ghosts, as when Lord George Osborne, the second son of the then Duchess of Leeds, the Lady Charlotte Townsend, was killed at Oxford in 1831. Mrs. George Portal, Lady Anne Townsend's niece, saw George Osborne pass through the room where she was sitting. Mrs. Portal spoke to him, but he did not answer, and the servants declared that neither Lord George nor anyone answering to his description had entered the house. But on the morrow, word came of the fatal accident which Lord George had met with at the moment when he had been seen by Mrs. Portal. In the royal bedroom at Raynham, not far from the saloon, where the picture of the lovely Duchess of Leeds gives additional beauty to her surroundings, it is quite usual to find a heavy chair set overnight well against the wall, arranged next morning round the large card table. Perhaps some of the gamblers who lost fortunes at Raynham are permitted to indulge, not in a quiet rubber, but in a more exciting game of chance. The ghostly card players remind me of other occurrences when strange noises are heard on the landing and whisperings and the swish of skirts testify that the picture gallery is alive with the quality who ruffled it in the days when the splendor of the great hall was undiminished. The Honorable Mrs. York Bevan, who often comes to Raynham and occupies the room above mine, once told me that she was sure some of the servants held secret revels in the vicinity of her room. I think you should speak to them, said she. Such things ought not to go on. I hear noises coming from the room next to mine quite late at night. The room adjacent is a bathroom, giving immediately onto the roof, and once on the roof there is no other way in or out, so it was evident that ghosts and not servants were responsible for disturbing Mrs. Bevan's slumbers. Indefinitely more peaceful psychic manifestation is associated with a little oratory which I instituted at Raynham in memory of Townsend. 
it has always been customary to burn incense on the anniversary of our return to the great house, but we were once absent when the anniversary came round. However, at twilight the sweetness of incense breathed the benediction over the great house, pervading every nook and corner so noticeably that the housekeeper came running to see who had done this thing. However, the charcoal did not glow, and the spices remained lifeless. As she returned to her room, no wiser than when she came, but always followed, she said, by the perfume of the non-existent incense. The Story of Sarah Fletcher and Edward Craig Sometime Vicar of Jevington Told by Maud Folks The Tragedy of Sarah Fletcher One of the best authenticated English ghost stories will appeal to romanticists who, in these days of modernity, possess the courage to acknowledge that they are still in love with love. The beginning and the end are two graves. The dead beneath are as the poles apart. One of them sleeps in Dorchester Abbey Church, the other in a village God's Acre, hidden away in the grey-green breast of the South Downs. The country vicar and the unfortunate young lady never met in life, and their sentimental association represents the spiritual side of a romance which brought comfort to a gentle ghost to whom rest and happiness were denied. In the summer of 1913, I rented a cottage on a backwater of the Thames, not far from Dorchester, and one idle afternoon I went into the ancient Abbey Church. As I walked down the center aisle, my attention was riveted by a plain slab with this amazing inscription. Reader, if thou hast a heart famed for tenderness and pity, contemplate this spot, in which are deposited the remains of a young lady whose artless beauty, innocence of mind, and gentle manners once obtained her the love and esteem of all who knew her. But when nerves were too delicately spun to bear the rude shakes and jostlings which we meet with in this transitory world, nature gave way, she sunk and died, a martyr to excessive sensibility. Mrs. Sarah Fletcher, wife of Captain Fletcher, departed this life at the village of Clifton on the 7th of June, 1799, in the 29th year of her age. May her soul meet that peace in heaven which this earth denied her. Spellbound is the exact expression which describes my state of mind as I looked at this pathetic gravestone, shorn of the turf and flowers which do so much to beautify mortality. Who was Sarah Fletcher? What was her story? And, as of an answer to my question, the dust of a hundred years blew against my face. Are you interested in our mysterious epitaph? And turning in the direction of the voice, I saw someone who might easily have been the living counterpart of the Black Bishop of Polchester Cathedral. My name is Points, said the Black Bishop, and I'm the vicar of Dorchester. I wonder whether you would care to hear how Sarah Fletcher died. As the epitaph says, a martyr to excessive sensibility. Yes and no. Sarah Fletcher took her own life, but let's sit down and I will tell you the whole story. So, sitting in one of the ancient pews with the afternoon sunlight sending arrows of light from the jeweled windows across the church, I listened to the ageless tragedy of a broken heart. In the last years of the 18th century, said Mr. Points, Sarah Fletcher and her husband, Captain Fletcher, one of the Fletchers of Saltoon, lived at Clifton, Hampton, not far from here. Captain Fletcher was in the Navy, and following the popular tradition of the sea, he was not only inconstant, 
but unfaithful. He actually proposed marriage to a wealthy heiress living some distance away, and he was on the point of committing bigamy when Mrs. Fletcher, warned at the last moment, had only just time to reach the church and stop the ceremony. It is not difficult to imagine the scene which followed. Captain Fletcher literally ran away, made for London and sailed for the East Indies. The unwedded bride returned home with her parents, and Sarah Fletcher went back to Clifton Hampton and hanged herself in her bedroom, fastening her pocket handkerchief to a piece of cord which she fixed to the curtain rod of her bedstead. A pitiful story, isn't it? Yes, a very pitiful story. Where did she live? I am so drawn to Sarah Fletcher, it's just as if I'd always known her. I felt this when I saw her grave. The house has always had the reputation of being haunted, said Mr. Points, but as it is now some kind of an institution, perhaps poor Sarah's ghost no longer revisits it. However, I will ask the owner of the property to allow you to look over the place, and at the same time, he may be able to give you further particulars about Sarah Fletcher. During the rest of the day, and most of the ensuing ones, I was obsessed with Sarah Fletcher. I asked myself what had become of the innermost flame that burns when all else is ashes. Surely it existed somewhere today. I knew I had not heard the end of the story, even when the black bishop told me that we were up against a dead wall, as the owner of the house disapproved of my supernatural yearnings and refused to help me to discover new facts about the forgotten tragedy. What could I do in the face of such opposition? Mr. Points was frankly angry at what he called churlishness. Then an idea struck him, and he exclaimed, The very thing! Why didn't it strike me before? I'd completely forgotten Edward Crake. He explained that a friend of his, the Reverend Edward Crake, now vicar of Jevington, near Eastbourne, had lived for many years in Sarah Fletcher's house when it was a private school for boys kept by his parents. I'll write to him at once, said my friend, and he can get in touch with you in London. In the meantime, use a little tact and try to get a glimpse of the house for yourself. I took Mr. Point's advice, but I was disappointed. When I first saw the solid, uninteresting Georgian mansion, three stories in height, with a flat leaded roof from whence previous occupiers had looked down upon the country through a network of trees. Once admitted, the sense of familiarity with the dead became intensified, and as I waited for someone to take me to the matron, I distinctly saw a woman wearing a black cloak, looking at me in the shadows of a passageway, whose white face and anguished eyes were crowned with a tangle of auburn curls intertwined with colored ribbon. Then it disappeared, and feeling a thorough fraud, I interviewed the matron as one solely interested in the welfare of girls not ghosts. But although I put forth various feelers, I could get no information about the supernatural. Yes, there were noises, but there were always noises in old houses. Wasn't there some story about the place? Yes, she seemed to remember something. However, brightly, I have so much to do that local gossip doesn't possess any interest for me. After the front door closed behind me, I stood in the old carriageway down which Sarah Fletcher had driven in haste on the morning when she discovered her husband's wickedness, and down which she was carried to her last resting place in Dorchester Abbey Church. 
It was a strangely deserted environment, although today youth pulsated inside the house of so many sorrows. All around me was the bitter scent of evergreens, and no flowers flaunted their beauty against the burning blue of an August sky. But here existed one of those psychic mysteries that neither science nor religion are able to explain. I described my impressions to Mr. Points. Do you believe in ghosts, I said. My answer shall be that of Madame du Defant. No, but I am afraid of them. However, Edward Craig is unshaken in the reality of his supernatural experiences, and what he does not know about Sarah Fletcher is not worth knowing. A week afterwards, I gave up the tenancy of my cottage and bade goodbye to the genial black bishop. Little did I think, when he wished me well and blessed me and my undertakings, that I should not meet him again on the side of eternity. Even then he was in the first stages of mortal illness. He was a very gallant gentleman, full of understanding, and his little world was the sadder because of his passing. Back in London, I possessed my soul and patience for news from Jevington. Mr. Craig suggested lunch at the Berkeley, after which we can discuss the matter which interests us both so deeply. In this way I discovered the truth, and nothing but the truth, about Sarah Fletcher, and heard the story of the romance between the quick and the dead. On the surface, my new friend was the typical country parson, a quiet and assuming man possessed of a certain personality, although he was the last person whom one would have suspected of indulging in flights of sentimental imagination. I was to find out, however, that Mr. Craig did not imagine things. He merely described what he had seen and felt to be true. As we sat in the drawing-room of my queer little swallow's nest home, which in the past had already seen strange happenings, I listened to the vicar's story. My father was a schoolmaster, said Mr. Craig, and when I was ten years old his school outgrew the accommodation of the house in which we lived. So a friend, the non-resident lessee of a large house some eight miles away, made him an offer of this at the surprisingly low rental of twenty pounds a year. Owing to its eerie reputation, the property had been neglected for years. The gardens were wilderness, the stables and outbuildings in a ruinous condition, and the approach was a damp, muddy lane, often flooded in winter. The house itself was sound, its walls were very thick, and my father took possession, in the face of assertions on every side that we should not stop there more than six months. Seven years passed, and I had arrived at the impressionable age of seventeen. I was a healthy, normal boy, and as my father had strictly forbidden any gossip likely to prejudice the school, I knew nothing about the tragedy of Sarah Fletcher, until the night when she made her presence known, and, let me frankly confess it, I fell in love with her. I have been blessed in my marriage, Mrs. Folks, no man more so, but the memory of the other remains in the secret chamber of my heart, where it will exist till I die, just as Sarah's personality will never leave the place where she lived out her life. Hasn't someone said that tragedy is always a more tragic thing when it is brought upon oneself by one's own act? How true it has been in this particular instance. One moonlit night I lay awake in my bedroom, which opened out of a large room known as the lower room, when I heard steps which awakened subconscious recollections descending the stairs. The door opened, and the unseen walker entered, hesitated, and went out. I lay curious and speculative until the sound of the church clock 
striking three set the air vibrating. But as I heard nothing more, I turned over and went to sleep. The next night, the same thing happened. I felt there must be something uncommon about these footsteps, so on the following night, I determined to lie in bed with my door open and see for myself what or who came down the stairs. I had not long to wait. The footsteps of someone wearing high-heeled shoes came into the room toward my bed, then retreated. I sprang up and ran into the long corridor, as bright as day in white radiance of the moon. Then she was made manifest, and I saw Sarah Fletcher standing by one of the long windows. She seemed tremendously alive. There was nothing dead about her. Her eyes were full of tears. She had come from the edge of the world and from soundless space to seek my love and pity. I wonder if she looked as she did when I saw her, I said. Mr. Craig turned sharply. Have you seen Sarah Fletcher? I nodded. What did she look like, I asked. She wore black silk cloak, fashionable at that period for protecting ladies' dresses from the dust of the roads. She was hatless, and her hair was twined about with a purple-red ribbon, most probably as on the morning when she rushed across the countryside, broken-hearted and desperate. I was not in the least frightened. I wanted to help her, to befriend her. Then all at once a patch of moonlight alone marked the place where she had stood. The next day, when I cautiously communicated my experience to one of the assistant masters, I found that I had stumbled on everybody's secret, that at a quarter to three each morning, restless footsteps wandered from the room in which Sarah Fletcher hanged herself to the bedroom in which I slept, but for some reason or other I had never been aware of them. My friend said that once, as he was going upstairs, he met the steps coming down and felt a cold wind pass him, a quite understandable phenomena, cold being an invariable feature of psychic manifestations, while my younger brother, no longer tongue-tied, related that he, like many others, had heard the phantom footsteps, but it has been tacitly agreed never to discuss them because, more important than anything else, it would stir up trouble and make my father furious. Curiosity, once aroused, is usually insatiable. I began to make inquiries in the village about Sarah Fletcher, and I was fortunate enough to meet with an old man named James, then between ninety and a hundred years of age, who remembered her artless beauty and who told me details of her unhappy life. A search in an Oxford library yielded the information published in Jackson's Oxford Journal for Saturday, June fifteenth, 1799, which will interest you. And Mr. Craig gave me a paper on which was written in his neat clerical handwriting. On Saturday last, an inquest was taken at Clifton in this county before our Buckland gentleman, one of His Majesty's coroners, on the body of Mrs. Sarah Fletcher. The lady put an end to her existence by hanging herself with her pocket handkerchief, which she fastened to a piece of small cord and affixed it to the curtain rod of the bedroom in which she usually slept. After a full investigation of the previous conduct of the deceased and the derangement of her mind, appearing very evident as well as from many other circumstances, the jury without hesitation found a verdict, lunacy. The husband of this unfortunate lady is an officer in the Navy and is now on his passage to the Indies. 
The truth was hushed up, I said. Yes, there was a conspiracy of silence. The body was buried in consecrated ground. Captain Fletcher was well away. The other woman and her family would naturally take the line of least resistance. But nobody reckoned with the earthbound spirit, irresistibly drawn back from the other side to haunt the scene of her destroyed illusions and her wasted affection. Having at last obtained some key to the mystery, continued Mr. Craig, I asked my friend to sit up with me all night in his little room, which, it so happened, had been partitioned off from the bedroom once occupied by Sarah Fletcher. And strange to say, our vigil took place on the very anniversary of the faithful day, or rather, night. The evening dragged heavily. We read, played draughts, but all was quiet until the June dawn made itself dimly seen through the window curtains. It was a quarter to three, and as we sat there looking at our watches, we heard footsteps behind the thin partition. The footsteps went down a little passage and then passed out the door. We both jumped up and looked out. The passage was fairly well lighted, and I distinctly heard the unseen wanderer from the beyond going along it as we followed a few paces behind. The steps reached the staircase and began to descend the stairs. We looked over the balustrade, but at the juncture my friend's courage gave out, and I went down the flight of stairs alone. Midway was a landing, and a succession of short stairs ending in front of a window. On the right hand was the door of a lower room. Between the dawn on the one hand and the moon on the other, I saw her again. This time she smiled at me, and her face had lost something of its tragic intensity. She turned the handle of the door, opened it, and I ran towards her. She was so real that I could not believe I was in the presence of someone dead in the body for many years. Speak to me, I begged. Please, please, speak to me. But the door closed in my face, and when I pushed it open, the room was empty, except for a few boys sleeping quietly and unconscious of the phantom which had passed by. I now knew my romance was beyond human agency, but its beauty and sadness appealed to my heart and to my imagination, and it constituted a bittersweet happiness. Sometimes I saw Sarah Fletcher, but I always sensed her nearness. At times I felt I had only to turn my head to find her beside me, while the footsteps continued night after night. Occasionally a visitor staying with us would say to my father, You were very late last night, Mr. Craig. No, I went to bed before twelve, said my father. Well, I heard footsteps just before three o'clock. So I thought, you must have had a late sitting. Of course, I said nothing. I knew whose footsteps they were. No man ever wore Sarah's little high-heeled shoes. Strangely enough, within a year the footsteps ceased. The atmosphere was more peaceful, and for ten years nothing untoward occurred. I suppose the lovely ghost knew that she was no longer destitute of sympathy, although she did not materialize as often as in the early days. But to me, Sarah Fletcher represented, and still represents, the undying romance of youth. These ten years saw many changes. My father and mother had retired. My brother, now married, was headmaster of the old school, and I had been ordained and was now chaplain of a large school. Everything was apparently uneventful in our lives, when just before one Christmas holiday, I received a letter from my brother asking me to come home. Do you remember... The ghostly occurrence of ten years ago, he wrote, they are worse than ever, and we want you to investigate them. I returned to Clifton Hapton, 
wondering why Sarah Fletcher had suddenly become active. Did she wish to recall me? Was she desirous for some sympathetic intercourse with one who pitied and loved her? I asked myself these questions a hundred times, but when I talked things over with my brother, I found that the present manifestations, while keeping to the same hour, were by no means confined to it. Some of the pupils declared that a woman occasionally came into their dormitory, and my sister, who was sharing Sarah's bedrooms with a cousin, was awakened by finding her in hysterics, brought about by a presence, which had stood by her bedside, and disappeared. Our cousin knew nothing of the story. Neither did the nurse, who was sent for at my sister-in-law's confinement, and given the haunted room as being nearest to that of the invalid. Is it possible for me to have another room? The nurse inquired on the morning after her arrival. Why? Aren't you comfortable? asked my brother. Oh, never mind. It really doesn't matter. I'll try it again. And the nurse said, but the next day she declared she positively must sleep elsewhere, as every night someone came and threw himself or herself down on a non-existent bed, and when nurse struck a light, no one was there. All very disconcerting, wasn't it? For dared to I heard and sensed nothing, until one bitterly cold night, when I was awakened by a succession of noises, of doors opening and footsteps in the passages. After these frantic knockings sounded upon the ceiling beneath my room, and my bell rang so violently that each instant it and the wire threatened to part company, I put on a dressing gown and hurried down to my sister's bedroom. Poor Elle is terrified, said my other sister, who slept with her. Do go and see what the noises mean. Are the burglars? Remember, except for the servants and the other wings, we three are alone in the house. There are no burglars, I assured them, but I'll go through the house to satisfy you. It was a weird experience, for although I loved the unseen woman who now walked close beside me, I felt there were other evil entities at work, and I knew enough about such matters to understand that evil possession is often attended by horror and danger. Nevertheless, I examined every room in the house. By the way, have you ever noticed how different rooms seem at night, just as if they are given over to other people? And at last I saw her again, in the darkness, and the oppressive stillness which saturated my soul. This time romance came to me my candlelight, and with my eyes held to hers, I saw once more the sweet perfection of Sarah Fletcher's beauty, and realized the pathos of a broken life. Here, at any rate, was no dark spirit of evil, and the abnormal extension of vision and perception granted me. Habit vouched for by Sarah's Fletcher's good and my own happiness. I went back to my sisters and bade them trust in God as nothing could harm them. But after I left them, I was awakened by a deafening crash outside my room, repeated three times. An idea inspired me. I was a priest. Why not use the ancient form, commanding spirits to depart in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? I did so, and quiet descended on the house of tragedy for the remainder of the night. My attempts at exorcism did not produce lasting results. From that night until my relations left the house, it was the scene of many psychic disturbances. And once, when my brother was in London, my sister-in-law was awakened by sounds as if furniture removers were shifting furniture preparatory to removing it. She even heard bedsteads being taken down and the iron lathes placed on the floor. Terrified, she roused a visitor sleeping in an adjoining room who had listened in astonishment to the uproar wondering why the household was apparently occupied with moving preparations in the middle of the night. 
This occurrence was prophetic. Within a year, fever broke out in Clifton Hampton, and it extended to the school. So my brother, wearied alike of illness and the terrors by night, moved the school, lock, stock, and barrel, to a town on the south coast. Was this the end of your romance, I asked? Mr. Craig smiled. Actually, yes. Definitely, no. Since such a memory is unforgettable, as a scientific and absolutely true experience, I think it is unique and I have placed the majority of the more prosaic facts on record with the Society for Psychical Research. The sentimental side I kept to myself, but your interest and appreciation have led me to tell you the part which Sarah Fletcher has played in my life. All the facts have been corroborated, and the assistant master who sat up with me on June 7, 1854, has furthermore stated officially that one night he saw a cloud-like shapeless mass when the muffled footsteps reached his bed, and he never forgot the feeling of horror which it aroused. Who lived in the house after your brother left? A succession of tenants occupied portions, and when two Balliol College men went to see it in 1885, it was divided into a couple of cottages. The door at the foot of the stairs was permanently closed, and the anteroom ceiling had been removed to give place to a near staircase. Our old cook and her husband lived in one part of the house, and I used to go there every year on a sentimental pilgrimage, but latterly I've discontinued doing so. After all, said the quiet little clergyman, what do distance or places signify to the secret dreamer? To quote H.G. Wells, this life too is a dream. Dreams within dreams, dreams containing dreams, until we must at last maybe to the dreamer of all dreams, the being who is all beings. We bade each other au revoir with a hope that any friendship created in mutual sympathy would be lasting, but hopes like promises are unreliable. We never met again. Trouble overtook me and temporarily overwhelmed me. Then came the upheaval of war. The vicar of Jevington died in the following year. The Reverend Edward Craig's body lies in Jevington churchyard, besides those of his wife and his only son. He had been vicar of the parish for twenty-eight years, and standing by his grave last March, I realized that there are indeed more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy, and that one half of the world does not know how the other half lives. It was a windless, sunless day, but the breath of spring was in the air. Hosts of daffodils waved their green spears in cottage gardens, and in the free stretches of meadowland patches of violets stained the hedgerows like spilt wine. Jevington churchyard, so typical of this pastoral countryside, is as still as the downs which enfold it, but it responds to the touch of the changing seasons. The sun shines, and the rain weeps for the dead, and the moon enshrouds them in silver. The artless beauty has no such kindly benediction. Heedless feet pass and repass daily over her head, and she sleeps in a tomb within a monument raised by pious hands to the glory of the god who alone understands the heart's bitterness and the frailties of his children. The story of Sarah Fletcher and the romance which she inspired have remained hitherto unwritten, but I believe that in a beneficent and beautiful paradise she and the vicar have met again, and that his prayer and intercession have obtained for the beloved ghost the peace which this earth denied her. <laughs>